Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm CJ. This is Isaac. And we are joined today by a friend of mine, Indira Udofia. Indira, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thanks for inviting me. Indira, you and I graduated from Disc School together, but you are still doing the damn thing in academia. So you, I think you're one of the only folks left who are still pursuing higher ed. Tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about that if you want. You know, I actually have been thinking about this. I don't know if I'm like actually doing the damn thing or I'm just a glutton for punishment. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I'm a first year PhD student in um, social work at UNCG and North Carolina A&T. Because I'm in a social work program, I can actually speak way freer than I could ever done in any type of religious studies program. So it makes things a lot easier to do the scandalous things that I want to do. But it is weird being out of the div bubble and back in the social work bubble because it's a whole other different world. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, so speaking of which, I bet it's been really interesting to be on that side of things during the pandemic. Is that like, what sort of perspective has that given you on everything that's been going on? It is making me trying to figure out what an exit strategy looks like, honestly. So I have been working all pandemic. Um, I was working in community mental health up until... October of last year. And then I um, focused more on my studies, but I also opened a practice. Well, I opened two practices basically. Um, And so I've kind of been kind of doing the entrepreneur in like helping healing professions on top of studying, on top of raising a cat that I got during quarantine because I'm a glutton for punishment. And yeah, so it's just been kind of like this weird thing where it's like everybody's traumatized and stressed, but nobody has acknowledged that they're traumatized and stressed. And so it's just like all these like agitated, activated people, you know, cannibalizing each other and ripping each other apart on my timeline daily. And I'm just like, you know what? This would be a good time for everyone to like unclench your jaws, maybe even your butt cheeks a little bit and like take a breather because you're all, y'all are doing a lot. I totally know what you mean. Um... Because, okay, this is like not in any way the same, but I think it kind of is that the uh, community Facebook groups for my small town in East Tennessee have like gotten violent recently where people are just like, I saw somebody on my property. And if I see anybody walking on my property, I will fucking shoot you. Mm. Like, stay out of my shit. Don't, and like this other, I mean, a couple of weeks ago, this woman was like, a young man came and like rang my doorbell and I was overwhelmed with this sense that he was up to no good and like posted a picture of his car in the group. Turns out he was like trying to find the owner of a lost dog. Like that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the level we're at. Somebody literally posted in our like town community Facebook group, uh, all you newcomers need to understand that this place ain't Mayberry. It's just like, what does that even mean? Yes. I don't know what that means, but it sounds a little racist. One hundred percent. But yes. secondly, okay. he meant that if you walk on people's property, you should expect to get shot. So, yeah. um, well, that's again, like, it's not that serious. I think it's it's really not that serious. Like, I wish people would just, you know, I get it. Everybody's kind of scared and terrified of either catching something or something happening. But also like if we can just take a chill pill and just like really 
invest in our mental wellness the best way we can, we would probably avoid half of the accidents that we're seeing out in the public. I just think people are forced to pretend like things are normal. And so in lying to themselves, they're just spiraling in a way that's just really, really scary and unhealthy. Yes. Do you, do you think part of it might be similar to like the Trump with the Trump effect where, you know, when Trump kind of came for four years, suddenly people are just like, well, I feel comfortable spouting all of this racist, racist nonsense. And now there is kind of like that, that up sense of fear is just kind of pushing some of this stuff out of people. I mean, our next door and our neighborhood groups have always been just a dumpster fire that I just like going on and poking the bear a little bit until they found out at the church that I worked at and started <laughs> sending the church Facebook message, uh, messages. But uh, jokes on you, fools. I run the uh, Facebook page. And so I just deleted them. <laughs> but, uh, but no, but I think like, you know, because before it was always like one of three things. It was, I think I saw a wolf. Uh, I think I saw a, 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 a mysterious car. And then I think I saw a black person. Those were the three, pla- uh, uh, you know, they were never said those ways, but that's what they were. But now I think you're right. I think it is just like, for me, it's, I'm seeing. So they, they wouldn't outright say they think they saw a wolf. Oh, they would say, they would say, sorry, sorry. I saw a very large dog. <laughs> well, they don't want to be discriminatory. Like I'm not specious or anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was just alarming. Well, it is, you know. A large dog without a collar. The, the, I think I saw a black person was the one that I was, oh, I would always tell my wife because it's like, there's a suspicious person walking around the neighborhood. And it's like, that fucker lives two doors down from me. Like, I know him. His name is Arnold. What are you talking about, people? Anyway, whatever. But it's like, I, I, I see what you're talking about too. Like the level of kind of like aggression and just like, flat out, I'm going to like bust you in the face uh, in one way or another. And I'm not even going to think about it has come out. And so I I just wonder if there's, if it's like that back-to-back trauma has somehow kind of just changed people and they're just not even going to pretend anymore, which I don't know if that's good or bad, but I guess you just know the people to avoid now, maybe. I don't know. I, I think that's part of it. But I think another piece of it is just like, we've been kind of circling this drain even before Trump. I'm in North Carolina still. I've been in North Carolina since I was five. I hate to say it, but white folks have always had audacity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> there's nothing that really is <laughs> is really strange about this event. Um, the level of boldness has not really shifted too much. If anything, it just, there's actually a lot more white people trying to like ease up and be like, I'm not like the crazy white. I'm just like, racist light, like, you know, like I'm just diet racist. I'm not full on, you know, diabetes level racist. And it's like, um, no, it's just like racist. There's just like one, it's a one note situation, like across the board. Um, but I do think that part of it is, is that right now we're really aware that the way that we have structured and strived and oriented our lives to like be is not sustainable. And we're freaking out because we have no idea what to do next because we don't want to do the thing that you know would be realistic which is like you know tearing down the capitalist system and starting afresh we don't want to do that because that's uncomfortable because why why break down something that's clearly not working and we don't want to try anything different but we really don't know what to do next and so a lot of the anxiety about like what the future is going to hold has just kind of spilled out in this really toxic you know, circular way that I think that folks haven't quite figured out yet. Like, just like, this is not sustainable. Like, literally, we've been through an, a year of social isolation for some people um, or modified social isolation. And we have been working, going to school, and we're actually 
ramping up productivity. We're not tampering mm-hmm. it down. We're not making adjustments. We're like, actually pretend like all of this is normal. How is, how is anybody supposed to like actually be healthy? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, one comment first before I get back to being serious, but crazy racist and no crazy white and die racist are a new Crayola crayon colors that have been announced. <laughs> I'd also like to say that you also have to work through ice storms, right, CJ? Um, <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. Well, but I think that you're right, dear. that people have spent the last year being told by their job and basically by our government, like, you're replaceable. We don't give a shit if you die. And your like, life is totally meaningless to us because we will not protect you. We will work you until you cannot work anymore. And if you get COVID and die, we'll replace you with somebody else because y'all have no other choice. And literally, yeah. literally every... Every reason to keep somebody in the workplace, unless they just like so boldly cannot have somebody in the workplace, they're going to put you in that. Yeah, I don't, we don't need to get all me off on this yarn, but uh, yes, exactly. I mean, also, it's been really funny just the way people have freaked out about kids missing like a semester of second grade. Like, oh no, like, what are they missing? I'm sorry, but how much learning are they doing then? It's like, Jesus, you know, let them cut out some construction paper shit at home. But the real reality is that we've seen, especially on uh, like mainstream sort of lib media stuff, like upper class white people talking about how much they hate having their kids around them. Yes. <laughs> please, please open the schools. I can't spend this much time with my children. I hate them. Or the classic New York Times article that came out about what should I do about my servants? Do you remember that one? They didn't use the word oh, servants, yes. but it was just like, oh my God, I am not even going here. People are like, you don't understand. Like when I retweeted that, they were like, you don't understand. It's a big deal. I was like, no, it's not. You can clean your own house. You're going to be fine. Done it my whole life. Um, I, and I'll, just to go back to the kids part, like I, my, I have a daughter. My daughter is a junior in high school. And she is not missing, <laughs> if anything, she is reeling how much bullshit um, comes through in day-to-day, every in-person learning school. She's like, I'm finishing this stuff in 10 minutes and none of it matters to me. Just get me out the door as quickly as possible. So I think, I think there are kids who are learning, uh, at least teenagers. My son is the opposite. He's just, he's not, he doesn't see that, but he just knows that he can watch YouTube videos all day now. But anyway, uh, shout out to Ben's GPA, uh, eighth grade GPA. But anyway, check the algorithm, bro. Don't let him get radicalized. I know. Yeah, keep oh, an eye on that. Trust me, we 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 could have we could have a whole conversation about that because we've caught some things. But um, but I think that I think that's it's an interesting thing to see where kids are starting to see this kind of stuff and starting to realize that hey, wait a minute, maybe all these things that you said were important aren't necessarily important, or there are other paths than just going through this one straight shoot that they tell us everybody has to be through. So. Generation Z and Generation Alpha are literally probably going to be the things that actually break apart this like shitty system that we're in. Like I just, I'm like listening to our, like I like to say my young siblings and like nieces and nephews. And I'm just like, y'all really, y'all really are, are saying the things that like me as a millennial I've been thinking about. And like, you know, I've kind of adopted this like, quasi nihilism, like, okay, the world is garbage. And I'm just like, I'm doing all that I can just to exist in this garbage system. Y'all are like, the world is garbage. And like, we're about to sort compost and burn the rest of the trash. Like, and I, I'm, I just really appreciate that type of energy and zeal for life. Like, like it is garbage. Y'all are garbage. Let's do something different. I just love that energy. 
Yeah, shout out to Althea who was on like episode four and almost burned the podcast down with her uh, hottest with her zeal. <laughs> the, the hottest takes, yes. So many people have commented to me and it's like, oh man, that one episode with Althea, like, damn, I can't believe y'all posted. <laughs> They're like, did what it was like? What was it like recording? I was like, we just like got out of her way and let her do, do her. Let thing. her cook. Just can't close the kitchen door. Let her cook. Yeah. So Indira, I wanted to have you on the pod because you've been talking about healing and have been a healer since I've known you. So can you tell people a little bit about, you know, the things you study with spiritual trauma and healing and stuff and and maybe give us a little backstory about how that became something you were interested in? Yeah. So um, I came to divinity school kind of on this false premise that I was going to be somebody's pastor. And I say it was a false premise because like, I really wasn't fully sold on it, but like, it was kind of told to me, like, you will be clergy and that'll be a thing. And so I kind of got into divinity school, but I always had this like weird tension around church. I've never fully fit into the church models. Um, I always would be sitting in stuff and being like, this doesn't make sense. Or the way we're orienting is garbage. So I went into seminary, um, pretty pretty skeptical of the process. Um, and as I was going through seminary, sitting in double 16, 0016, I realized that like the kind of things that I was questioning and wrestling with as far as like Things, how things were being preached or what messages I was hearing about gender and sexuality and race, um, that this was the place where all, all the pastors were learning it. Like this was a mm. site in which like harm was being indoctrinated into folks. Mm. And then I also saw a whole bunch of well-meaning, well-intentioned, um, mostly white um, pastor wannabes who when they graduated, I wouldn't trust them with my sea monkeys, let alone a congregation of people. (laughs) And so it just really kind of spiraled into this like ravenous question that I had always had about just like, why do we say church is a safe space when all of these bad things are happening in church, right? Mm. Like how do we, can we say that church is a hospital when I literally hear hack jobs on Sunday morning? Um, And so that, that became a thing that was kind of driving my studies when I got to seminary and in my social work program. So I have a dual degree in a master's of divinity and a master's in social work from Duke and Carolina. Um, And so as I was kind of studying, I would be talking to my theology and and ethics professors like, this is my level of inquiry. This is what I'm interested in. And they'll be like, that's such an interesting topic. Best of luck figuring out what to do with that. And in the social work department, it was like a whole bunch of social workers who had all of this religious trauma, all of this like hangups about religion, discomfort about talking about religion, um, not knowing how to like address spirituality in sessions or um, understand the context of faith, especially when it comes to folks who are minoritized. And they were being launched out in the world without any toolkit for how to really address spirituality and social work other than telling people to practice mindfulness and leave their church. Um, And so I realized very quickly that even though we have these joint programs, what was happening was there were two types of social workers that were being unleashed into the world. There were social workers who were 
so traumatized by religious spaces that they have the MDiv that they were doing nothing with and they were just going into the nonprofit sector and then MDiv kind of put them in the foot in the door so they could get a job. Or you had a whole bunch of radicalized Christian social workers that were coming out using scripture and pretending that was therapy. Um, And so I realized that there had to be someone that had that could ever be taught, be able to talk to both experiences and have the literature behind it to help them navigate the type of people who are actually be coming to their doors and in their doorstep, doorsteps. So that kind of started my academic journey. And as I was working on my licensure, I was very, very clear that like, I wanted to do stuff around spiritual trauma. I wanted to do stuff around stuff, but I wanted to be practical. I wanted to be a resource rather than just kind of, you know, engaging in the circle jerk that is academia where we're just writing to other academics. Um, and so I created a space where I could develop interventions and do kind of the one-on-one and consultation work that I was kind of envisioning, and that is Sanctuary of the Seeking, um, which I developed in uh, of October of last year. And so um, both of those things have kind of been slowly moving, but it's been about like 10 years worth of like questioning, wrestling, and development. So yeah. Yeah, it's awesome to hear you, to hear the clarity you've you've really hammered out in, in this vision because you've been talking about all this stuff, you know, almost for a decade since I've known you and and I can tell how much like um, how much work has gone into really honing that down to that succinct description. So that's awesome. Uh, I'm proud of you. But I, I have a, like a really dumb question to to just start out with, which is like when you talk about social work, what all does that encompass? Because I think some people envision like helping people apply for entitlements or something else, but then also there are people who have an MSW who are like therapists. So when you're talking about like the people who are going out into the world with this training, what are they going out to do? So the interesting thing about social work is that it is literally a jack of all trades, master of none type of degree. You get these introductory experience in doing clinical interventions for individuals, families, and groups. You also get to um, learn stuff about how to create macro or community and policy work. Um, And that's all in your first year. So you can kind of learn base level how to address needs and how to learn systems and how to navigate how to teach people how to navigate or advocate within these systems. When you get to your second year, that's when you kind of get a specializing or you kind of do like any type of strain. So I um, actually graduated as a macro social worker. So my primary training is into community development, um, policymaking, how to do communal or large structure interventions. And then I just so happened to get a clinical degree because that's really how you get jobs to do the kind of higher level work. Um, So you have social workers who are in hospitals that specialize in just discharge planning. You have social workers that do more clinical work, clinical facing work. Um, So that's like the therapy work. You have social workers who are um, engaged in systems like DSS which kind of is what most people think of when they think of social workers, mm-hmm. the folks that you apply your, for your food stamps, the folks that you deal with child welfare, like those type of systems. You have social workers in school who do resource allocation for students and families and do advocacy work like that. You have social workers who are lobbyists. So it really does depend on what 
what is your passion and how you can apply it. But social worker, social work basically gives you tools, interventions, and skills to be able to be an advocate and empower. The core component, though, is social justice at the core of our training. That's really helpful. So kind of like backing up on the other side of it for another definition. Uh, I think a, I think people use the language of trauma around spiritual experiences a lot, but maybe not quite in the with like the background and the training that that you have. So what it, what do you mean when you talk about the experience of spiritual trauma and religious harm and, and stuff like that? Okay, so I'm glad you asked this question because I had to have this conversation with my advisor yesterday. So this is fresh <laughs> in my mind. Um, so. Religious or spiritual harm can be mutually mutually exclusive or inclusive. So I use it as an inclusive term because I have found that folks, especially minoritized folks, really don't parse out fully what is religion and what is spirituality. It's kind of something that's kind of has always been this like these unholy bedfellows that are intermixed with each other, right? Um, And so when someone has experienced some level of violence or offense. Let's say it could be financial abuse through like financial manipulation. It could be emotional or verbal abuse through preaching, teaching, um, and polity work. It can be things as simple as being policed as far as how your gender or your sexuality is performed in a space. If it has such an adverse effect that it not only impacts your ability to participate in a religious system or and it also impacts your ability to understand, connect and conceptualize the divine as something that is not violent, then that is something that is spiritually or religiously traumatic. So you mentioned earlier that you know, people coming out of div school uh, aren't necessarily <laughs> graced with these sort of uh, sort of skills. I guess like for pastors, I, I don't know how to frame this question because I think anybody who would care about this, it like anybody that would want to ask a question about how do I get better at this probably wouldn't because if they're already doing it because they're operating like from a power standpoint. But I guess like if you're going to cut that out from the beginning, like how do you think people who go to div school and are, or want to become clergy and get into a parish or a church you know, what are the ways, I guess, like how could div schools, I guess, better uh, uh, get them ready for this? I mean, is it just mat- mandatory therapy? Uh, I, I saw something on Twitter the other day, uh, CJ, you, I think you responded to it too, where it was like some people will go get a whole MDiv instead of going to therapy. And I, I laughed my ass off. <laughs> that is so fucking true. I know though. it is. I was like, I, I screenshot it and I saved it on my phone. I was like, because this right here is gold. But I think that there's something to that. Like, and, and part of this conversation is like, how do we... So much of seminaries is like this deconstruction a lot of times or this like refusal to see any other side. And I think what you're saying is that some of this could really break through and help people. Uh, I'm being very optimistic about this. Feel free to feel free to take it in a different direction. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Like one therapy should be mandatory for all seminarians. Although it, at Duke, the bulk of CAP services are divinity students. So that should tell you something. So I think one of the issues is the issues are twofold. One, you go, you get this degree, you get this education. And the main thing you hear, and Isaac, you can probably um, confirm this, is you can't preach this on Sunday morning. But here's this very liberatory thing that you should learn in order for you to have adequate fake construction. Mm. 
why can't we teach that on Sunday morning, right? We're already teaching pastors and leaders to have a bifurcated life and to pass down a bastardized faith. And so in, for the sake of keeping the peace and having tradition. And that is something that I am personally not okay with. Um, I think that when we go to seminary, um, and I'm just speaking for myself, when I went to seminary, I knew that I was not going to seminary alone, that I had a whole community that was going to seminary with me. And so the education that I got, the resources that I had, the books that I read, all of those things were learned in community. And I think a lot of folks come in thinking, oh, I'm going to get this MDiv. I'm going to get all this education. I'm going to learn all the Greek. I'm going to learn all the Hebrew. I might even take, you know, a couple of the classes with like the big wigs, right? Like the Harawasians. And then after I do all of this, I'm just going to go to the small country church and I'm going to not even problematize the fact that they have a Confederate and American flag in their sanctuary. I'm just going to go along to get along. And that creates this really unhealthy, toxic cycle of like a detached and non-invested pastorate, right? But more importantly, we need to teach people that when you go to seminary, you need to be working on you. Um, there were so many pastors and ministers and deacons walking around Duke Divinity School and not people. They weren't working on their own stuff. They weren't developing their own ethics. They weren't thinking about how they were entering into the space. They were performing and playing the role of pastor and pastorbating over every everyone. Credit to Antonia Tarazos <laughs> yes. who gave me that. Yes, I saw that on Twitter just yesterday. Pastorbating <laughs> uh, <laughs> is incredible. Yeah. Uh, it is so, I mean, I remember quite clearly I don't know if you were in my precept. So it was a theology precept. Um, and I was, and we were talking about, we were talking about salvation. We were talking about the crucifixion. And I flat out said, I don't think Jesus's death is redemptive at all. Like in the era of like black death that we have been experienced through state sanctioned violence, I don't really feel like this is something that I'm going to be able to preach as, oh, how redeeming and wonderful it is for Jesus to die. And I had literally classmates attack me and like try to like accost me in the hallway to witness me back to the cross. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, you know, I have been Baptist. I'm culturally Baptist, but mostly non-denom, charismatic leaning. I've been Baptist all my life. I know the cross. I know the cross in a very intimate way. And as a Black person, I have a particular understanding of what the cross does, right? And how the cross thinks. How can you, who just, who literally says, I advocate for my congregants not to vote because, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just spiritual citizens, not human citizens on this earth. How can you tell me about the crucifixion when it's really your folks who are the ones who are stringing me up. So like, I really don't, I really don't hold that into tandem. But if there's something about me that, something that I said that agitates you, that's the work that you need to do outside of me. Like, I don't have to be your redemptive agent. I don't have to be your intellectual mammy. Like, you need to do that work on your own. You need to go and witness to yourself. You're the one who needs to handle your, your own internalized racism and, and like, all of that stuff is on you. That's not on me. But we don't really teach people how to actually think about that 
before they go into the seminary doors. It's just like, how can I take all the classes that I need to take so I can tick this box for the UMC church so I can get this degree so then I can get my orders and have my church? Well, I, there's so much to... We could spend three hours like breaking all this down because it is so complicated and I have so many thoughts. <laughs> but um, just to try to... I mean, I was, I was listening to another podcast yesterday, uh, a really good one called What the Folk, F-O-L-K. It's a, uh, interviews with organizers. And I heard one with this awesome organizer, Ashley Woodard Henderson, and someone was asking her about burnout and organizing spaces. And she said something that's so relevant to this conversation. And she said, um, she's like, my first question when I hear about burnout and organizing is like, who's, who's saying it? And what are they really feeling? And what do they mean when they say, I'm burned out? She's like, because typically it's people of privilege who have like been challenged and, and want to get out of the space because they're uncomfortable. But the other thing that she said was, uh, at the same time, Organizing work is not about healing you. She's like, organizing is not going to fix your mental health problems. It's not going to fix like abuse you suffered. She's like, it's about winning collective political goals. It's not about like fixing you as a person. Mm -hmm. And I think the exact same thing is true about seminary. And, you know, there were so many people who are like, in the nexus of trying to figure out their sexuality and, and what, God has to say about it. There are so many people trying to figure out like, um, I mean, we were there in seminary when the Black Lives Matter movement got going. Like there was so much stuff going on. And on top of that, there's like the inner politics of of that whole place. So it's like, okay, um, if you're coming here because like you have hangups that you need to work out, like it's just, it, it can be a really emotional, emotionally charged uh atmosphere for sure. Like people crying in class and stuff. <laughs> or coming up to you crying, apologizing for racism. Yeah. Like general yeah. racism. Not helpful. <laughs> Definitely yeah. happened. I just want to let you know that actually happened. Like in general uh, racism, I'm sorry. Like legit, they were watching 12 Years a Slave in a class and um, <laughs> I don't know if you were there when this happened. I was like, but <laughs> yeah, they like got super agitated in this one particular class. Um, shout out to that professor. Um, and they, I didn't even know them from like a piece of dirt. Like I maybe had met them once. Like I didn't really have a relationship with them. They weren't a friend, anything like that. And they came up to me red face, sobbing, saying, I'm just so sorry. I didn't realize that Black people were going through, went through so much. And I just looked at them and I was like, Okay. And then like, I went and got my grilled cheese. And so like, I just, there was just so many times where it's just like, you know, I really wish y'all would have just like, I don't know, talked to somebody that was licensed. Like, and, and the same is, is, and I'll say this as someone who did both programs, similar things happen in the social work department. The only difference is, is that like, there were places, there were like actually healing spaces for folks to do that work with couched within our discipline. Where at where in divinity school, there really wasn't, there wasn't even really pastoral care. There was like two people carrying pastoral care on their back. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. Oh, go ahead, CJ. Oh, I was just 
I was just thinking about how part of that starts outside of the divinity school system, right? Like it starts in the ordination process, especially in the United Methodist Church, which um, is the ordination process I'm most familiar with because I did it. Um, And like I was doing it when I was 20 and a college student and I could have ended up at Duke, I think maybe at the same time as y'all, honestly. (laughs) And there's like part of the process is doing like a mental health evaluation and there's no resources for like, if you are struggling with your mental health and part of the evaluation is to prove that you're emotionally healthy enough to be a leader of other people, which means that it incentivizes covering up any sort of like uh, mental health problems you may be having. And I think back to like who I was when I was 20 and like the stuff I was going through and like how I could have ended up at Duke Divinity School at 21 years old, popping out at like 24, ready to be ordained. And I'm like, that would have been a disaster. But uh, the Methodist Church was like willing to do that. (laughs) Anyway, that was uh, kind of a long digression. Sorry. No, I I don't think it was a digression at all. I think there is something about age of coming into the program. So I came into the program at 20, 25, right? So like I had had, I had taken some time off in the middle of my undergrad degree. I had been working the whole time. I kind of was of Durham. So I kind of already had this lived in experience about where I was. So I came into seminary on a completely different wavelength than I think a lot of my colleagues that I went with. And part of it was age, right? Like just not having it. But I think more than age, I think it was privilege. Like there was just a lot of privilege about how um, vocational identity is formed and shaped, how who gets to willingly enter into spaces who have to fight for their spaces and having all of those experiences in a classroom without giving attention or credence to that really did some of our students a disservice. So like during my time, like I almost got kicked out because I was advocating for queer students. And so that ended up being like a whole thing where like when you're talking about like, oh, seminary, it's such great times. Like I had such a good thing. It was such easy, smooth. And all the professors liked me. Like I didn't have that. I had people literally tell me, you don't know how to write because I just happen not to be formed in religious studies, right? Meanwhile, I'm having people now who are just like, you're an amazing writer, da, 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 da. <laughs> like, you know, or like more contextual spaces where they valued my voice or valued my perspective in ways. You know, there was a lot of just convoluted stuff. And at my age, I was able to kind of advocate in ways that like my, some of my colleagues were not. So they internalized and were morphed into a certain type of being. I mean, we used to joke um, among some of our students, like, there's a certain way that Duke students pray. (laughs) There's a certain way that Duke students preach. And you can tell that they went to Duke literally by the way that they enter into a worship space because there was a one type of way that was valued. And that was the one type of way that we experienced in our preaching and our liturgy development and all of that. I can still do the voice. Like I do it for fun at parties. It's fun. Do it, do it. All right, let me do it without laughing. We should have had we should have had like the cone of silence where we have Isaac put one over on Isaac so he uh, he can't hear you and then see, compare. Uh, <laughs> who gets All right, it? let me see if I can do it. Holy God, give you thanks for we give you thanks for gathering today. We give we honor you for the space and the connection that we share. 
Dear Creator, we just want to give you thanks and praise for showing up and being in this space, in this time. Be with us forever. Amen. I mean, I, I actually have just, I just renounced my ordination uh, process in the Episcopal <laughs> Church. I'm going back to the Methodist Church now. I just, that, you, that was it. So many listeners are feeling personally attacked. <laughs> I love y'all though. I mean, I love, I love it. Like it's a great skill and like, it's nice for me to be able to code switch in ways. But you know, when I tried to bring that back to my then home church, they were like, what is that? <laughs> like, I don't know what that is, but there was only a certain way that I could perform at school. And then I had to leave all that stuff behind when I went into my church context because it wasn't, the two didn't relate. Well, I think one of the big things you hit on is that um, pastoral care, there was a freaking joke, Uh, mainly because most of the professors didn't think that it was like a legitimate area of study. Like, the, the main reason why none of this stuff is really talked about or addressed in any serious way is because the professors who are all, you know, serious academics and probably don't even really want to be a part of training pastors to begin with. They just want to be thrumming like a taut wire in their office. <laughs> think that pastoral care is a joke and kind of the being a pastor is a joke, which is why they're, I, I mean, I think that one of the other realities is that, you know, you were talking about religious studies and like how you're formed to write that way. I think people are formed to preach that way. So it's like, oh, um, when you get out of divinity school, it's like, okay, I've, I've been taught to like deconstruct every passage and specifically to say like, oh, you read this, but whatever you're reading, it means the exact opposite of what you read. And there's no way that you can understand this unless you have an MDiv like me. So then let me tell you what this actually says because I've got all the tools to figure it out, like the secret code. I mean, it it almost becomes like, you know, I mean, you like put yourself in such a position of authority as the only valid interpreter of the text. And then on top of that, the thing that seminary has taught you to do is to then say, oh, and here's all this awful shit that we that I can tell you about, like the context or or the theology or whatever else. So then suddenly if it's like, okay, folks who have suffered uh, spiritual harm or abuse in the church or are looking for someone to help them reconstruct their faith and a healthy relationship with God, what we're coming out of seminary telling people is actually you can't trust these texts or this community or this God. And sometimes what they need is like one person to be like, this is what it looks like to have a healthy relationship with God. And this is how you can find it in scripture. And so religious studies stuff, I mean, it, it kills me because it's like, oh, we we want to be talking about like all these real world, real world problems in the text, but the people who are writing that stuff are so disconnected from the actual world and actual communities that... I think it ends up just creating a lot of um, well-meaning pastors just piling on to the abuse that vulnerable people in their congregations have already experienced. And let's just, you know, I'm going to say the unpopular thing. And luckily this is about getting canceled. But when you're not a celebrity, you can't get canceled. Oh, so, oh, um, oh no, I don't know. We'll, we'll test it out. <laughs> That's 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 literally what I'm operating on. The fact that I am so unpopular <laughs> that like anything I say won't cancel me. Pre-canceled. Um, there you go. But like 
even field education, right? Which is a complete and utter joke. Um, I think trans- it sets you up for failure, right? So you're getting, you're normally getting these places that are like, you know, dying churches. Most of the churches are like on, are, we're in spiritual hospice. And so they just throw you into this context and they ask you to, you know, try to preach twice. You know, you may do a little worship planning, whatever kind of skill you enter into, that's what you'll kind of do. And if you're a minoritized student in any way, that becomes a contested violent space for you. Mm-hmm. You already can't trust yourself. You already can't trust your gifts or your voice coming into a context that literally is looking at you like, I thought we were going to get a white one this time. and. On top of that, it's not, there's not really a space for people to actually come together and work out the tensions of what's not working with the way that we're formulating. There's no type of like reflection class that goes, that's ongoing throughout the school year. There's not a place for us to really talk about integration work. So we really are doing these like two siloed realities where you have a pastor who's kind of been in the field for a while, who's telling you all that Duke stuff is not really going to work here. So you're just going to have to go along to get along. And then you have a classroom of you telling you like all the stuff that you're learning in the classroom, is not really going to go in the field. And so you have all this information and nowhere to put it. Yeah. Uh, shout well, out to, I'm, I'm going to give a shout out to Vanderbilt Divinity School uh, and, and Vicki Madsen, who created a program exactly what you're talking about because of that reality. Now, Vanderbilt was by far not perfect. Um, they were, we had to teach a whole, we had to, in our preaching class, we weren't allowed to preach the divinity of Christ, which is fine, uh, I guess. But, uh, but, but that was all caveated with, with the idea, with the saying, well, you're never going to be able to use this, like literally was said by the preaching instructor. This is what you should preach, but don't do it. But we did have um, reflection uh, like every week. It was actually a real pain in the ass to have to go to that class every week in, in conjunction with an internship for that very reason. Now, of course, I don't know that it helped anybody and I'm coming at it from, you know, straight white guy place. So it was like, oh, this is very reflective. I, um, but, but I think that that was one thing just to I would give a shout out to, to Vicky at, at, uh, at Vanderbilt Divinity School, you know, but, but sometimes when you're talking about the tiers of Divinity School, Vanderbilt is just up there. And so Duke is kind of trying to get to it. So I understand why that didn't necessarily happen for you all. You're trying so hard, Brian. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, I, you're not going to take it. They're not going to take it. Are they trying um, anymore? I don't think so. No, they're oh, not anymore. It, it, they peaked already. <laughs> they're 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 kind of done. I think. Okay, so Indira, I I mean, I I think that again, like I said, we could talk about seminary for hours, but um, I do want to get back to this social spiritual harm. But the last thing I want to say is that like the other reality is the ordination experience is abusive as fuck. And um, and so is itineracy. Shout out to uh, all the pastors who just got a new appointment. But shout out to the pastor at my old church, which who did not get a new appointment, and they are going to close. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he is running that shit into the ground. <laughs> nice. You reap what you sow, bitch. There it is. So, Indira, we've kind of talked about spiritual harm, how extremely complicated it is, and even though we bag on seminary all the time, like these dynamics are present in so many communities and so many spaces, as you pointed out with your reference to social work. Mm-hmm. But I want to hear some of the ways that you help people work through this stuff. Like what are some of the you know techniques or like key things that, that you try to teach people about healing these, this trauma? 
Yeah. So the way that I've kind of couched it is in twofold. So in Sanctuary of the Seeking, I provide one-on-one spiritual coaching and counseling um, for folks who are kind of coming to sessions with spiritual integration or um, deintegration issues, right? So whether they are just like, I really can't do it with the church anymore. I just need a space um, or counseling folks who are trying to enter into ministry, but know they have a non-traditional ministry talking about like, how do we understand vocation? How do we, you know, talk about what ministry could look like or possibilities? How do we navigate our gripes with God? Like, you know, you know, what do we think about the God question, right? And so I do work around that. And then I do work with with actual like churches doing more um, educational events. So I talk, I have like a Bible study that I do for four weeks out of, uh, uh, for four weeks, which is like literally doing spiritual trauma one-on-one where we use intimate partner violence frameworks to talk about the complexity of how spiritual trauma shows up in spaces. And we do some type of narrative um, therapy work to talk about how do we understand our own journeys and how our own journeys can represent certain trauma negotiations we have surrounding faith. I also do work around um, helping pastors with consultations. So if they have a, a scriptural passage or the pericope is kind of dicey and they want to know how to engage in a trauma-informed way with scripture without just kind of bludgeoning the congregation to death with all the ways that like the Bible is trash or all the ways that these Bible characters are trash or they're scared of like trying to communicate things. So like, how do I talk about sexual assault in a way that doesn't victim blame or doesn't, you know, perpetuate patriarchy or doesn't perpetuate misogyny, right? And then I also do work around purity culture, um, especially people of color's introduction to purity culture um, and how does that complicate our relationships with gender and sexuality um, in class. And so I kind of do a lot of like consultation, coaching and counseling work right now. Eventually, once um, everyone gets vaccinated and the world actually opens up in a safe and healthy way, my Sanctuary Seeking will be offering vocational um, clergy retreats for clergy to actually do the kind of um, safe landing work that seminary should have done um, to help them kind of work through their own traumas and see how they're bringing traumas into their own ministry contexts. And then having like accountability groups for clergy people to connect and like hold each other accountable and do that kind of like holding affirmative space. Because one of the things that we learned in seminary and beyond is that once kind of clergy get launched out into the world, it's very isolating and it's very hard to connect to like the classmates that you have. And so like, you know, you really are kind of feeling like you're doing this by yourself and you're losing the ability to kind of have, you know, a diverse approach experience and like that support network for people who actually get it and can speak your language. Yeah. And then I'm also writing and doing all the studies and all this stuff. For me, it's like, I I know that I, I see this, right? Like this is real stuff. And so there's, Part of me is like, well, how is this not already something that somebody has done, right? Like, it it feels so obvious. But then you think about any kind, and we could all, I would have different examples, but it's like you think about experiences that you've had in church where, where this is just so evident. Like, I worked with a pastor, my first church job right now, and he was 
another clergy person described him as the most broken individual that she knew. But yet he was leading one of the largest Methodist churches in North Carolina. I'll just say it, it doesn't matter. He's retired now. And, and it was like, he was broken. And like, so, so it's like, there's this, there's this whole thing. It's like, why are we not doing more to fix it, right? Like, like is it's, and, I, and I wonder if it's part of the system. It's just like, well, we don't want to do, especially in the Methodist system, we can just shuffle them around. Maybe they just need a bigger church to work out their stuff in. Uh, and it's, it, it would be interesting to, to look back and be like, this person might've been working out these same things from divinity school all the way to first Methodist church of, uh, I won't say the name. Um, and, and, and if they're working out the same thing, it's like, damn, we should be, we should be fixing this now. And so maybe that's, that's part of my kind of like, I'm chewing on all of this because it seems like such an easy thing that we should have already fixed, but it hasn't been. Well, and not even just, I mean, forget the past, the pastor to congregation perspective for a second, but Indira, could you talk about like, if you're a lay person who thinks like, maybe, you know, you've gone through something traumatic in the church, like what are the, some of the signs that you would, you could help people identify that they might need to do some of this work or that they have experienced spiritual trauma. Because I think the biggest thing about trauma is that people are always like, oh, that happened to somebody else. It's, it's not true about me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so, so if, if someone's listening to this, like, you know, how would you describe to them like, how they could identify that in their own life or experience? Yeah, so I think it's the, the issue about spiritual trauma is that it's super insidious and it's also self-defined, right? So something that could be traumatic to me may not be traumatic to someone else. And so what I would always say is that, you know, if you ever are in a service or in a context in which you feel like you're just not fully present in that space, you don't feel fully held or affirmed. Um, you're kind of feeling like you're walking on eggshells trying to navigate and be a part of community and you have to kind of live up to a certain type of experience in order to like have valid support and care and concern from your congregation or your pastor. That might mean that you might not, you might not be in a safe space, right? And or a protective space or a brave space, whatever the space, whatever t- um, iteration of space you're looking for with churches. Um, I often say if your pastor has high charisma, um, kind of an authoritarian model, whatever they say goes, um, there's no kind of checks and balances within the context. And like, you know, they're like, they're controlling your finances. They're taking up all of your time. Um, everyone that is kind of in the support of the pastor is kind of like, in this kind of feudal mindset um, or constantly walking on eggshells concerned about being discarded, then you might not be in a spiritually safe space and you might want to consider um, figuring out what does healthy relationships look like. Um, Or if the congregation or the church context is so, identity is so predicated on one particular type of leader, to the point where any other forms of leadership, any other forms of expressions of faith are um, frowned upon and stifled, then that might mean that you might want to find either a safer space to be or work through it. But if you're just struggling with the concept of scripture 
or God, um, if you're finding that there are certain tapes that you're replaying and it's impacting your ability to be connected to individuals, connected to um, romantic partners, um, connected to money, then you might want to consider getting some type of additional spiritual coaching or counseling surrounding about how your frameworks are impacting your ability to function in everyday life. I mean, why is why is spirituality? Well, I guess this this is a two part question now because I'm working it out. But when it comes to intimacy and religious spaces, why do you think, Indira, that so many folks who've experienced religious trauma or like spiritual harm also have like trouble with close relationships with sexual intimacy, like? Is it the really, you know, you talked earlier about the difference between religious trauma and like spiritual harm and, and some of that. So I'd, I'd be interested how you would identify the source of it. But in your research and your thought, like, why do those things so often go together? So I like to think of it to, in two folds, right? So um, for certain people who grow up in certain type of like high religiosity, as well as in the social work world, we call it like high religiosity, which is high religious participation, high Christologies, high like methods of like participation, engagement, and orientation towards religious events, right? High religiosity tends to be a very like entangled understanding of the world, right? Your social circles are often tied to churches because you're in you're in church three to six days out of the week. Your financial your financial life is tied around, you know, paying tithes, offerings, dues, special offerings, you know, giving of your time, talent, and um, time, right? Then you also have these like really strong scriptings from an early age where you're constantly taught how to police each other, right? Our Christian experience is, is deeply tied to policing um, in ways that I can't get into right now, or we can talk about it as like another question. Um, and so in light of that, we actually don't know how to be in community or how to authentically show love or compassion or care without this concept or intermingling of mastery and control mixed with it. And so in light of that, when we're trying to learn or disengage or detangle the messages we have about people, communities, intimacy, partnership, and try to disengage that from our faith context, we literally don't have any type of framework to rebuild or replace those tapes and messages. And so it ends up being this really long, drawn out process of trying to figure out, well, what is actually affirming about the things that I learned about relationships, love, my body and things, and what can I actually like keep and what can I toss out? More importantly, we're also taught to detach. So we have a whole bunch of people who have learned dissociation as a spiritual gift. Mm -hmm. And so we really don't even know how to better connect with our bodies and our minds and ourselves because we are told that those are the enemies and combatants of the spirit instead of being tools and um, technologies that the spirit used to speak to us. And so in light of that, all of that kind of mixes up and turns into this really kind of toxic 
jumbling. And so what happens is as soon as your faith becomes toxified and like you realize you have to get out, you really are have you're trying to figure out what's next. And the best thing that people tell you is, well, just read this book or like you should just get over it already as if it's, it was, it's natural to create a whole ethic of community and sex and love and engagement overnight. The read this book thing is um, is too real because I <laughs> I do think more often than not, like we think that somehow knowing that it shouldn't be that way is enough to sort of break out of that thing. But it, it's a it's an entire practice. It's an entire way of conceptualizing who you are and your identity. It's not as simple as being like, oh well, now I know that's wrong. You know, I read the oh god, I can't. I'm like totally blanking on her name. Unprotected text. That's a, a book that people often refer. Yeah, or like I, I read the Rachel Held Evans book, and so like now I'm good. Or or even on the other side of it, evangelicals do this too. Like, oh, you had a bad breakup. Well, read Wild at Heart by John Eldridge, so you can learn that every woman's a princess and needs like needs a savior. And so yeah, I, I think that that's huge. The other thing you said about uh, dissociation as a spiritual gift is. Also, so incredibly true. I know so many people who are like in in conversation with me will just brush past like violent experiences or or abuse or uh, assault and and just be like, oh yeah, that happened and it was hard, but like whatever, because they have like had to numb themselves to the reality of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that hit that when you said that that hit me really hard, just because. Uh... Like disassociation is kind of my modus operandi. Like I am profoundly divorced from my body and I was like totally fine with it. But that was actually like in the context of my faith and just the rest of my life, like hiding some like really deep truths about myself just because I like had no way to connect to like what my body was feeling. And like in the context of my spiritual life, it meant that I was like having horrible panic attacks for years, like when I was a missionary and when I was a youth pastor. And they would happen when I was going into church at a really like hard time. But I didn't like know how to square that like the reason that my body is feeling this way is because of anxiety and because of like the, the, the spiritual harm that I had experienced in this space. And so I just like kept going and powering through it because there's no context in a lot of Christian spaces and a lot of Christian communities for like, how do you go to church with anxiety or like, how do you, how do you not power through that and still be in community? Mm. Or, you know, giving myself permission to save my own life by detaching from the institutions that's slowly killing me. Right. Like I think it is never a bad thing to take a sabbatical, to take a beat to take a pause or to leave, like just to leave a spiritual space that's not spiritually edifying. And if you can't find a space creating and cultivating technologies and tools so that you can create a spiritual community, even if it's brunch with bottomless mimosas. So I think one of the things that like I'm holding on to dearly um, as I'm continuing to do this work and to study is to give people permission to do the thing necessary to save their own lives. Yeah. I mean, that's so important. I, I think I've spent up until I went on paternity leave last year, I think I spent like four years as a pastor feeling like 
uh, I was going to have a heart attack because like I, my body was like so tense before a church service that I was about to lead. Some of that has like, I've like somehow let go of it and, and feel a little better now, but also I'm at the point where I'm like, I don't know where I'm very close to exactly what you described, like being like, okay, like I'm not going to kill myself for, for the institution of the church. <laughs> it's just, but, but the, but going back to, the power that's put over pastors, it's like so many folks are like, oh, you know, we see this at, at the pastoral level and at the lay level, like suffering this bullshit is what Jesus wants you to do. And like, if you don't, you're not being faithful to your call, or if you don't, you're not being faithful to God, or if you don't, like, you know, you're abandoning your faith or some bullshit like that. It, it's just, like the stuff that Jesus means for everybody listening when he's talking about taking up your cross is like challenging power and like building communities of solidarity together to where like y'all can, you know, fight for a dignified life, not living in, you know, chains of, of abuse and, and everything else. Um, that's not it. <laughs> not and more importantly and I think what this is like one of the things that like I I hang my hat on right is that part of the great the, the great commission of greater works you will do right how does being in something that you have to lie to yourself you have to lie to people and you have to lie to God to do how is that greater right like how does that speak to a greater works if you can't authentically and wholly be in a space that God created you to be in right so like when we think about how we formulate or how we show up in ministry or how we show up in our personal lives or vocationally or whatever if we're not fully being creative, like our creative being, our fully created self, are we really doing greater works or are we just killing time, right? Like there's no reason to believe that God doesn't call us with, without full concepts of knowing exactly who we are. And it's exactly who we are that creates it. When, if you would have told me that me being a pastor was me doing Sanctuary of the Seeking, I would have laughed in your face because I only thought there was only one way to be a pastor, right? But I do the most authentic healing work as a scholar, as a, as a practitioner in this capacity because I can bring my whole self to the table and give permission for other people to be free and be their whole selves in healthy and meaningful ways. You know, why, I mean, I know that part of like what our generation is struggling with is sort of deconstructing and tearing down and these systems of formation in the church and in the academy that were meant and created to produce productive white men, you know, productive white men and in, in the, for the means of continuing capitalism. And, but like, at the same time, I, sometimes I find myself wondering, like, why is it taking it this long? And also, like, what the hell is going on with <laughs> white people, especially with like our parents and our grandparents, that they're like, oh, all this shit's fine. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I guess, you know, to me right now, like, so many of the conversations on this podcast are like, the norms in these institutions have to change. Um, and a lot of the folks that I see our age who are working within them are, you know, really 
trying to make that change happen at, at considerable risk. But at the same time, it's just like, we're in a moment where it feels like some of that's impossible. And yet it's like, so it's unbelievably urgent because it's just, it's not working for us. But the other thing is, it's not working for the people who are older than us, like who have been through this shit, right? It didn't work for them. But um, for whatever reason, they like, we're happy to go along with it. You know, it's just, yeah. One thing about institutions, they're always going to regulate. They're always going to stabilize. Um, and so until an institution crumbles <laughs> and a system like actually implodes upon itself, it's always going to try to find some type of stabilizing equilibrium. And I think that's the kind of like pressure that we always bump up against. Right. And so the question is, is not how do we reform? Because we know that reform is a is kind of like this, like faulty structure that ends up stabilizing and still minimizing the more progressive or the more imaginative space, right? But how do we implode the system in a way to give people permission to actually dream, right? And think of possibilities that are not rooted in the traditional structures that that are incorporated within our imaginations, right? Like, can we truly learn how to love people without mastery and control? Like, can that be a thing? Can we can we actually teach healthy sexuality in a church without browbeating um, gender essentialism and, um, you know, heteronormativity and, you know, toxic monogamy? Like, is that a possibility? Can we really do it? And can we use the tools that we learned in seminary and empower other people to use the same tools so that they can actually imagine scripture and speak to scripture differently according to their context? But all it takes is for someone to give someone permission to do something different. Mm. And the truth of the matter is, is that we, we walk on eggshells within our callings, within our context, simply because we don't want to lose a job because it's tied to our livelihoods. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're hitting on a bunch of stuff like, like I think on the idea of like, uh, like uh, being like, like prophetic. In, from the pulpit or just in in a church thing, and, and I, Isaac, I think what you said about it wasn't actually good for the people, for the people in the generations before us. And I think getting other people to see, not just not even speaking of like our gen, my uh, not our generation, you all are much younger than I am, but our different generations to see it, but to get other generations where they think actually that what they did was good to see that reality is that that that's a lot a lot of work. And you know, and dear, I think when you talk about you know the generations that are coming up and the stuff that uh, that they're kind of doing, I think that that's I don't want to say that the the greatest generation is a lost generation at this point, but it, but at some point, I don't think I don't know if the work happens there for seeing that reality as for what it is, as much as it happens that the kids that are coming up are going to be able to um, say this reality is bullshit, and we are are dreaming of we're imagining something better. So, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a whole abolish the church, right? Like there's a whole abolitionist movement to abolish churches, and I have to say, as someone who has all the degrees. I agree with them. Like we, we don't, there's too much policing in our imaginations. And until we can really divorce ourselves from the mechanisms of policing that literally keep us into bondage and keep us in chains, we really will never actually truly experience freedom. Yeah. I mean, I, um, shout out to, uh, that episode a while back where I was talking about God is not a cop. I mean, that that is at the heart of it, right? And and it's so funny because before I went to seminary, I was like, we need to burn down all the churches and like start over. And then I went to seminary and I was like, 
they like had some people there like, oh yeah, no, this is good. And then I'm back to like burned out churches. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, nothing will uh nothing will get you there faster than you know, working in them. <laughs> Well, there's there's no good transition here. But speaking of, I don't know, burning down churches, do we want to transition to a fight corner? Really quickly before we do, um, a listener to our last episode where uh, y'all were talking about, or Hannah was talking about a non-hierarchical Episcopal church. Uh, a, a friend of the pod was like, um, all y'all are like Anabaptists. That idea of a non-hierarchical Episcopal church <laughs> is just like completely impossible because the word bishop is the name of the church. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's a power structure in its very identity. He was just like that, you know, but and maybe it's an example of this exact shit. Like instead of trying to save it, just burn it down. Sharpen the guillotine for the queen and her like blood bag for Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> I've never note. met a bishop I trust. <laughs> uh, sorry to all Episcopal bishops I email regularly. Please don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, welcome to the fight corner. Um, uh, I guess before we get into it, you know, if you are a longtime listener, you may have noticed that uh, my name is CJ now. And if you are real canceled heads know that I used to identify as non-binary. I no longer identify as non-binary. I am a trans man. If you want to know more about it, you can at me on Twitter. I may or may not answer. <laughs> <laughs> Power so that's why my name is CJ now. And on that note, special fight corner for trans exclusive radical feminists, because we are recording the pod on the day that the Equality Act is being debated in front of Congress, including my horrific Senator Ted Cruz asking devilish questions. Um, but I wanted to bring TERFs to the fight corner. They started sort of in like British feminism um, and a lot of their ideas that have made life really bad for especially trans women in the UK are starting to filter over to the US. And I want to fight all of you in the Chili's parking lot in Keller, Texas, which is the next town over. So you can't actually find me. (laughs) Um, But I also did want to make like the connection between Um, trans-exclusive radical feminists who are just really fixated on policing trans women specifically. And I wanted to make the connection that this is also tied up with racism. So many of the uh, talking points about men in women's restrooms uh, and other horrible arguments that TERFs make about uh, why trans girls should not be allowed to play sports um, are directly linked to misogynoir and uh, the idea, uh, like these like age old racist ideas about black people that have now been sublimated into a new argument um, so that we can basically continue oppressing um, anyone who is not like white and cis and straight. It may seem like that's a bit of a stretch, but if you're <laughs> at all interested in the subject, listener, I, uh, I'd say Google it <laughs> or uh, at, at us on Twitter. Um, but all of the wave of anti-trans bills that are coming up in state houses across the country, um, it's all linked. Like it's not, it's not just, um, 
it's not just like all of a sudden Republicans decided to start hating trans people specifically. It's linked to the misogyny and the sexism and the racism and the homophobia that has been the GOP platform for decades now. Terps, you're welcome to fight me in the Chili's parking lot. You can you can give that lecture as in the chill. So if if uh, if they don't want to add you, don't have a Twitter account. We can, they can just show. I up was just a, I was really on one today. I was so I mad. Know. I was like reading the transcripts as right before I got onto the pod. Sorry. No, it's perfect. That's what we need. That's the energy we need to bring to the pod every time. Again, I will physically fight you. I won't just do it on Twitter. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but if people want to learn more, as I'm saying, if they're in there and support, the Chili parking lot is, 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 is expansive. They can learn about this as the fight's happening. That's what I'm saying. So you can, you can have a lecture beforehand, perhaps. Listen, I, I will join you in scrapping. There's a Chili's right down the street. You can head right over to Chili's at New Garden and we can square up. We need a Chili's. As Angela Davis says, if they come for me in the morning, they'll come for you at night. So, mm. you know, solidarity is very, very vital and key. And you're absolutely right about the intersections of racism and turf um, language because Black people can't, be people. So, you know, this idea of gender essentialism has deeply rooted in like these like very toxic systems of how gender is performed among the Black community. And so, yeah. So all I just wanted to say was you're absolutely right. And I will join you in scrapping in a Chili's parking lot anytime. Hell yeah. We just need the live, the live Chili's tour. When, when this pandemic is behind us, we need live <laughs> podcast Chili's tour. Uh, that's all I want from this. It's just a Chili's tour. Wow. So. That, yeah. Nothing else could could be better, but um, we're live. We got to get Texas. a J.K. Rowling dig in here. So I think what CJ is actually trying to say is that he will wizard duel you in a Chili's parking lot. <laughs> Coming for all you Hufflepuff turfs. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh no. Indira, is there anything you want to plug before we wrap up? Yeah, just, you know, thanks for inviting me. If you are interested in things that I'm doing, um, I have a landing page. I am U-D-O-F-I-A. I am Udofia.com has all the things that I'm doing um, and all of my writings about to be put up there as well. So yeah. And then you can also follow me on Twitter, um, but I don't really use it as an educational space. So if you just want me to like talk about, you know, how dating is trash in this common era or, you know, funny memes is I-M-U-D-O-F-I-A-88. And yeah, so Sanctuary is Seeking on all platforms. We will link to all of that in uh, the show notes and you will have the opportunity to see Indira's shitpost on Twitter if you so choose. <laughs> Indira, thanks for doing this. It was awesome to see you and uh, thanks for sharing your work. It's... it's um, so important and I know you fought really hard to get to this point and that's it's you it's amazing. Thank you, my fellow bad boy enthusiast. <laughs> All takes truly have been revealed. Yeah, that, today. That, that is a take that we're gonna have to revisit. Yeah, that was that did not get enough play. <laughs>